You're listening to the HR Mixtape, your podcast with the perfect mix of practical advice, thought-provoking interviews, and stories that just hit different so that work doesn't have to feel, well, like work. Now, your host, Sherry Simpson. Joining me today is Sarah Noel Wilson, CEO and Chief Edge Officer at Sarah Noel Wilson Incorporated. Sarah is on a mission to help leaders build and rebuild teams. Her goal is to empower leaders to understand and honor the beautiful complexity of the humans they serve. Through her work as an executive coach, an in-demand keynote speaker, researcher, contributor to Harvard Business Review, and best-selling author of Don't Feed the Elephants, Sarah helps leaders close the gap between what they intend to do and the actual impact that they have. Sarah, thank you so much for jumping on with me today. Thanks for having me again. It's good to, good to be back in conversation with you. Yeah, love catching up. And um, we just did a little bit of that offline and excited to get into our content today, really focusing on developing those leadership skills. So I want to start here. You have this vast experience. You've written a book. You do a lot of speaking. What are some common challenges that HR professionals face when it comes to developing those really effective leadership skills? And and maybe how do you help them overcome those challenges? Like in themselves or or the like leadership teams that they're supporting? Because I think those are two different avenues totally we could agree. explore. Let's start with <clears throat> HR professionals themselves. Yeah. One, I think we still have to just name the burnout and emotional fatigue and trauma that HR professionals are experiencing that we see in a level that's different than other positions and organizations. So I, I just say that from a standpoint of giving, giving yourself some grace. But I think one of the challenges that I see um, in HR professionals is that uh, a couple of things. One, sometimes we can hold ourselves to a much higher standard than we need to, and we can be much harder on ourselves. And then the flip side, though, is because we are the ones who are typically um, you know, thinking about leadership development, delivering leadership development. Sometimes I think we can confuse knowing something with doing it ourselves. So sometimes I think that's a trap we can fall into of like, we, we're the ones who teach crucial conversations and yet we're not having the conversations because we're like, yeah, no, I know that. Um, <clears throat> so those are, those are some challenges, like both kind of like two ends of a spectrum that, that I definitely see play out um, from that perspective. So much truth in the idea of kind of do what I say, not as I do, like, you know, or being like, what is that expression? Like the, the shoemaker's child, right? Yeah, Never exactly. Has- like has no, right. Yeah. The shoemaker, like they, they have no shoes. It, <clears throat> it's a very real thing. And I think that again, and just to be clear that that trap of confusing knowing with doing, and what, what we usually say is then doing it when it's hard is true of every leader and organization. And it's very much true. We see in high achieving folks who are used to getting things quickly and fast and realizing that when we're talking about leadership skills, really what we're talking about is human skills, right? People skills, um, that, that self-awareness, emotional intelligence, that deep, deep ability to be curious with yourself and other people. That's not easy always. And so that, so I just want to make sure I'm not like calling out my fellow HR friends that we see this as a pattern. Like, I know you read the book. I know. I know you did. But (laughs) how are we, how are we building the skill and how are we doing it when it's hard? But, but then the flip side is there's so much giving. I think that's one of the traps. And also just, I think part of the 
nature of the business is the people who are drawn to HR are givers and they want to be constantly giving. And so they forget to take care of themselves as well in the process, which is an act of leadership that I think we forget sometimes. I saw this a lot in my earlier career years in, and I, and I'm glad that it's changing, but there used to be this kind of mentality and teaching around, you know, HR is always on, you're always accessible. You have your cell phone with you. Your laptop is in your car, no matter where you are, weekends, evenings, whatever. That's no longer the case in a lot of places, a lot of places it still is. And, and HR is trying to help define what that looks like, but I'm, I'm, hopeful and optimistic about the boundaries that HR is setting to take care of themselves and to model the kind of behaviors we want. And I really appreciate your language around it's human skills. You know, so many Mm -hmm. times we label these as like soft skills. And I think Mm. that's just the wrong language. These are just (laughs) skills that we need. They are just as hard as other skills. Um, you know, and you mentioned curiosity. I'm, I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit around that philosophy of curiosity and how that empowers really professionals to lead better, be more authentic and, and create positive work cultures. Yeah, the curiosity is such a core to our practice and how we show up and the type of um, competencies we're trying to develop in ourselves and others. And, and, it, and I'll say just like, uh, where it came from was realizing that there are so many situations, whether that was um, miscommunications between people, whether that was an inability to um, have the conversations, whether that was, um, I don't know, there's a whole host of situations where I realized like the, the, the crux of this is neither of you are getting curious about the situation. You're not getting curious with yourself in the, you know, like, you got feedback and you declared the feedback is not accurate <laughs> instead of asking yourself, how might it be true? And and for me, curiosity really comes down to this core uh, belief that there's always things we don't know. There's always things we do not know about a situation. There's always things we do not know about the other person. And honestly, there's always things we don't know about ourselves. And I think that especially in, again, a profession that is working with humans, we see patterns, we, you know, we've kind of, we've seen it all, we've done it all. And some of that is true that there is a familiarity. And I think that can get in our way um, of our impact and effectiveness and being able to consider different perspectives. And so, so that whole idea of curiosity is just remembering that there's always things you don't know. And, and sometimes the curiosity needs to be really courageous um, to be willing to, you know, curiosity is easy when it's comfortable. It's much different when you're reflecting on yourself or you're reflecting on your culture to say, well, what have we done to contribute to to this? And or what are we not doing that's actually getting in the way or what are we doing that's getting in the way? And so what I find is that leaders who have a greater propensity to being more curious, they tend to be more intellectually humble, they tend to have a greater sense of self-awareness because they realize there's always something right to be discovered. Um, you know, the, the other thing I'll say about curiosity is, um, and I've shared this on, on some other interviews, but it's such a, God, such a beautiful story. My, um, I'll try to make it brief because I know we don't have much time. So let me like get through it because it's, it's going to be worth it. So, so my sister and her family, they were at the Holocaust Museum on vacation and they were listening to a survivor speak. And she happened to be wearing one of our chronically curious t-shirts. 
And the individual that they were speaking with, they got a chance to talk to him afterwards. And he pointed at her shirt and he said, oh, I like your shirt. Curiosity is really important. And she was you know, a proud sister, like, oh, it's my sister's company. And, and he said, and, and it's just so beautiful. He said, curiosity is the greatest gift we can give someone because we're telling them they're worthy to be known. And if that isn't really what leadership should be about, then I don't know what is. So that's, that's why I think curiosity is so necessary and being a really powerful people leader. I think we could just end the podcast there. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that such a beautiful, I mean, it's just, it's so beautiful. And, and yeah. It, and it just, it wraps in, you know, so much that I've shared with other people along in my career when they're like frustrated about something that's happening in leadership or frustrated on, you know, either the feedback they got from a peer, from a manager. And then you start asking, well, did you ask this question? Did you, did you put, put aside your feelings and start to get really curious. Like you said about like, where was that feedback coming from? What was mm -hmm. happening in the moment? You know, maybe, maybe there is truth in the feedback. Maybe there isn't truth in the feedback and there's something going on in that person's life. Maybe there's pressures from senior leadership. I don't know yeah. about. Um, and you know, so many times we don't ask the questions because we're afraid. We're afraid of looking stupid. We're afraid of being embarrassed. Mm -hmm, we're, being uh, there's a whole slew of things that hold us back from asking questions. And so often the people who we are going to be asking the questions to want us to do that. They yeah. want us to be curious. They want us to be vulnerable because that's how you learn. You mm -hmm. know, you don't, you don't learn unless you start to ask the questions and start to see people um, in a different light or unpack things differently. Yeah. Yeah. And even in that example, I can then get curious about why you had the reaction you did. Yeah. Right. Even just get curious about that of like, oh, that's interesting. Defensiveness. This is how it feels in my body. Right. You know? <laughs> what, what was it about that 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 triggered me so much? Like that's interesting. I feel like that's one of my mantras is, well, that's interesting. <laughs> like, right. When things are uncomfortable for me, whether it's anxiety, mental health, I've like just learned to sit with it and go, huh. That's, that's interesting. I see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. that that's interesting. Uh -huh. um, as you think about, you know, the work that you've done, I'm always, I'm always curious to ask those that are in the leadership development space, how do they think about getting first time managers prepared for their roles? Because mm -hmm. there's, there's so much that goes into that. Um, and, and a lot of times when, you know, I'm sure those listening know about the Peter principle where you get mm -hmm. promoted beyond what you're capable of or you're ready for. And it's like, yeah, you were really great as an individual contributor. And in now we dropped you into this manager role without helping you transition. So as you've gone through that work, you know, what are some maybe quick tips or ideas for those HR professionals to think about how do I start to prepare my individual contributors to move into that management role? So it's less choppy. It's more smooth yeah. transition. Yeah. It, to be honest, I've never seen a company do it well. I feel, I feel like we fail people and we fail the people we promote and we fail the people that are supporting them. And I think we need to raise the stakes to realize that's what's happening is when we look at harm, a lot of harm that happens in the workplace happens at the hands of really well-intended people. And these are people who are maybe unprepared, who are, um, don't have the skills, right? And, and one of the traps that organizations, I mean, what, something we see often is that the only people who are getting any kind of formal development, whether it's internal or bringing in an external company like um, ourselves, is only given to existing managers. And 
Now, I would argue that I would argue that a lot of the skills that we are wanting our managers to develop, we should have all of our team members wanting to develop, right? When we think about building a culture of psychological safety and inclusion and belonging, when we think about even coaching, this is something I'm a big proponent of is if you want to create a coaching culture, it cannot just be top down. You need to develop everyone in it. So everyone is practicing it. And, you know, and and so I think that... <clears throat> So, so my, you know, simple answer is when, when possible, include and invite as many people in those opportunities as possible. Even, even the people who you, you might think are, I don't know, less than or below, or they don't need it. Because if we can have people building the skills of having constructive conversations, being able to give and receive feedback effectively, being able to be vulnerable, right? Being able to be emotionally present and not emotionally dismissive. Like I'm, I'm thinking of all the things that we know creates harm in the workplace. If we can help people develop the skills of truly being self-aware and being able to emotionally regulate themselves, they're only if we can get them on the learning curve faster, <laughs> it's going to make it an easier transition. It, it might still might not be an easy transition, right? Simply because some of that, I think there's there are components to specifically when we're, if we're talking about you know leadership in a formal sense of leading a team. Some of it you just you just can't know until you get into it. And you can have all the ideas of what kind of leader you're going to be. <laughs> and you can have all the ideas of, I'm going to come in and I'm going to do this. And I'm going to have one-on-ones. And I'm going to be a better manager than my manager was. you know. And then you get somebody who you disagree with. And you're like, what do I do? Like, what part of my language? But like, what do I do now? Or you have somebody who's struggling with something. You're like, I've never had to deal with this. Or it's the first time you have to fire somebody. And you're like, how do I do this? But I think looking at those really, you know, those core competencies, right? For us, we look at it through the lens of how do we help people be better at honoring human complexity? Like, how do we help people just better understand people? How do we help them embrace experimentation? How do we help them to listen more effectively? How do we increase their self-awareness? And how do we help them uh, speak and stand with courage? Those are sort of our like five cornerstones. Um, so part of it is just stop being a gatekeeper, <laughs> you know, for, for really important skills that will just benefit the whole organization if we can get more people doing it. But, but we do, we, we absolutely fail first time leaders and we put them in and we say, good luck. Let us know if you have any questions. And they're like, I'm going to do a good job and I'm going to do everything I can. And then they don't understand why they're struggling. The other thing, the other thing that I think is worthy to say is, boy, we got to stop promoting the really technically brilliant folks into managing people who don't, who have not, like if they have not exhibited those skills, if they have not, that, that is, that is another part of the challenge is we're promoting people into leadership skills that just, there was an author once and I, his name escapes me right now. I mean, he's been, he's been around a while. He's in his eighties and he's a professor and he writes on leadership, but one of his books, he was talking about how we're asking too much of leaders. We're asking them to be technically minded. We're asking them to be very human minded. We're asking them to be strategic. And maybe part of the failure of management is we're just asking people to be too much. And I think that's an interesting question to reflect on. You know, every time I think about leadership development and, and the way you were talking about it, it, it always amazes me as we think about developing children, right? Mm -hmm. We don't usually talk about it with that language, but 
our intent is to prepare them to be successful adults. And so we give them these little bits of things. We teach them about conflict resolution and, you know, how to pick up the phone and order a pizza when they're like 10, mm-hmm, you know, right. and, and all these little things we give them, you know, you get a bank account and you, you help them manage money. And, but there are so many things that you just don't know how to do it until you get there. Mm-hmm. I had a really funny exchange with my middle kid. This was about a year and a half ago. Now he, he's in, he's in South Carolina and he had bought an airplane ticket for his girlfriend to come visit. And he called me, it was a couple of days before the flight. And he goes, mom, so like, when do they send me the paper? And I was like, the paper, what, like, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, the paper ticket to get on the plane. And I was like, there's, there is no paper. Like you bought the plane ticket, right? Like now I'm freaking yeah. out. Like, I was supposed to buy the plane ticket. He's like, yeah, no, I bought the plane ticket. He's like, I just don't have the paper. And I was like, oh, I get what's happening. I've printed your boarding pass in advance (laughs) on the printer and just given it to you. So you had it, but like, you just need the little code on your phone. He's like, that's it. They don't like mail. I was like, no, there's no, there's no paper. (laughs) And it was like one of those things where it's like, I wouldn't have thought to teach him quote unquote that, you know, and you just have to experience, but so many times there isn't a person for a leader to go back and ask that question. What about the paper? And that goes back to your curiosity. It's like, if they're not ready who do they go and ask yes. about the paper in yeah. a way where they're not going to get judged or laughed at or whatever? You know, I didn't laugh at him. I just was like, I got curious. What are you talking about? What do you mean the paper? Like, where did you order this ticket? Like all those kinds of things. But we can use that same analogy when we think about developing leaders. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I love, I love that story. And I love that metaphor of like, who, who do you ask about the paper? I had to laugh a little bit because we, we joke in my family of life lessons. We yeah. take our, our nibblings on a trip when they're 16. And uh, my one nephew was like, life lesson number 87, buddy. <laughs> like, you've just learned it. Like, <laughs> you know, and there are moments of, oh, right, we had to learn this at some point. But what I love about what you're, the connection you're making and what you're proposing is, who, who is that person? But not only who is that person, how do we normalize? You know, how do we, um, how do we, if I'm a mentor leader, say, what are all the questions you're afraid to ask? What are the questions you think you're going to look dumb and you're not? And I'm going to answer them for you because there are just moments where it's, you know, I, I see that in, you know, when we're working with clients, whether it's coaching or workshops, I'm like, you can do that. I was like, yeah, actually, that's that's what we want you to do. Like, that's okay for me to say this that way. Yeah, and 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 it's not it's not a judgment. We all had to learn it. You know, we've all had to have difficult situations and figure it out. And 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 I will say this: another thing that I'll say related to leadership development that is a something we can explore from a building all levels is very few companies have structures or mechanisms to get their managers together to talk about management challenges. So then what ends up happening is you have all of these people who are probably struggling with similar things, not talking to each other because they think, oh, everyone else has it figured out and I'm the only one who hasn't, or they're just working in their silos or they're so focused on the task and the objective that they aren't having the conversations. And I cannot tell you how often when we are able to bring these leadership circles together to say, what like what are the challenges you're facing and how much of a relief it is for some people to go oh i'm not the only one who's struggling with this or someone else like oh yeah i went through that here's what worked for me you might want to try it so i think something that companies can do as well to not only set up the 
entry, like the first level leaders or first time leaders, but existing leaders. Like, how do we have space where we talk about leadership topics, not just the projects, not just the objectives, but how the hell are we doing and how are we feeling and where are we struggling? Um, and all of where do we ask, hey, where's the paper? Where's the paper? You know? Yes. Feel free to beg, borrow, and steal that. Anybody who's listening, I think <laughs> so it's brilliant. Just, it's such a great analogy to just that curiosity and and being prepared for the future. You know, I I think about HR professionals and and the duality of them having to develop their own leadership skills. And in a lot of ways, there's stuff that we're trying to teach leaders how to do. Like we're building the plane as we're flying yeah. it, right? Yeah. In so many in so many ways. I'm curious, how have you helped HR professionals, but also leaders, hone in on making decisions? And and mm-hmm. I think that's such an important part of leadership is that, you know, you can be really you can get really good at analytics, you can get really good at data, you can get really good at knowing people and being emotionally resilient. But at the end of the day, in a lot of ways, you have to be the decision maker. And sometimes we get stuck in this analysis paralysis because we're balancing competing demands of, Mm -hmm. you know, things like employee experience and the strategy that our leaders want and our business execution. Do you have any advice there on, you know, how do you get closer and faster and more confident in making your decisions as a leader? That's a really great question. And it's interesting because what I'm reflecting on is we don't explicitly say, hey, what we're teaching you is decision-making skills. And yet, and yet that's a lot of what we're doing. So there's two two tools I would I would share. The first is um, a, a visual that I'll use with clients is helping them reflect on what does this moment need? What kind of leader does this moment need? Does this need you to lead out from the front to be really decisive, to be the one to make the call? Is this a moment where you need to lead from the side and collaborate with, you know, collaborate with people and hate together? Or is this something where it needs you to lead from behind and develop the other person to make that decision? Because sometimes, more often than not, I will say that I feel like what we see is too many people are leading out front and they're not finding the moments to lead from the side or behind. But it does happen. And I'm guilty of this. I'm super guilty of this. I love leading from the side and behind. <laughs> I love like talking about ideas. And sometimes the team's like, Sarah, just pick, just tell us what you want to do. Just make a decision. Just make a decision. <laughs> and so that's, that's one visual that people can think about is, you know, is this a high sense of urgency? Is this, is this something that for whatever reason, right? Like I just need to be the one to lead out front on this and say, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. But recognize when we need to bounce into different positions. The other thing is going back to that analysis paralysis, because there's really like two, two patterns that I feel that we see is that either there's the analysis paralysis or what we actually see more of is jumping to solutioning before we actually understand what the problem is. Uh, yes. Right. And so, so one, <laughs> making sure that we are actually spending more time than we would normally feel comfortable with. And, and, and part of that is because if you're in a leadership position, let's be very real. You have been rewarded for your answers. You have been rewarded for being able to solve problems. Your brain likes it. It gives us dopamine hits when we're you know, write about something. And so we're so quick to jump into a solution that I would actually push people a little bit to go, are you solving the right problem? Um, 
you know, whether that's reframing the problem, asking more questions about it, but one, you know, and, and, and if you've done something and it hasn't resolved the problem, then you're probably not solving the right problem, right? That's a really good indication you're dealing with something more complex. So that was one thing that was coming up. But the other thing, especially for those individuals who struggle with um, the analysis paralysis, is um, depending on the situation, how do you approach it like an experimentation, right? This is why one of our core and pillars is embracing an experimenter's mindset. Because a lot of times the problems we're facing, the challenges we're navigating, there's not a one-size-fits-all solution, right? Creating culture, there's no one-size-fits-all solution to that. Um, helping people adopt new technology, there's not a one-size solution that fits to that. So how can we get out of this? It needs to be right the first time and it needs to be perfect to Let's test something. Let's see how it works. Let's see what we learn and really take that experimenter's mindset of we're just going to try it and we're going to test it. And then obviously the other the other component of it too is identifying when is, I was just having a call with my colleague Amy, she said, I feel like this is an 80% one. And I said, yeah, we just need to get it to 80%. I would all need it to be perfect. It's just like version one. <laughs> Let's get version yeah. one out. But I think that that willingness to um, approach things more of as an, an experiment versus the like perfection. It needs to be right. We need to do it. And it's just like, so how might we, how might we try this? Okay. Like we're going to try this. Now, obviously there are situations where um, I'm not saying, I'm suggesting we're willy nilly just like, well, we're going to try whatever it's going to, it's thoughtful, right? It's, we're using the scientific method. Like here's what we think is going to happen. Um, but those, those are some things that can help push people who are in that paralysis um, but also can push some people who are like, here's the problem, here's the solution, and we're done. Yeah. It's like, no, we're just going to try this and we're going to see. Because that that pattern of solving the wrong problem is um, really pervasive, really, really pervasive in organizations. And I'm I'm encouraged about the curiosity we saw at the very beginning of the pandemic. And I hope we can still embrace that going forward. There was so much creativity that came out of solving really tough business problems with how do we keep our business thriving during this time? You know, restaurants who didn't have any online ordering yeah. very quickly figured that out. Um, and it took the curiosity to say, you know, for years we've said we can't do this. Now the question is, how do we do this? Mm -hmm. Otherwise we're going to to not thrive. Um, as we wrap up our conversation and, and we could talk about a million different things when it comes to leadership, I feel like we could have a 12 part series, Sarah. <laughs> um, I am curious if you have any tips though, for those leaders who are avoiding conflict. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I genuinely, I, I'm the kind of person who kind of thrives a little bit on conflict mm -hmm. in, in the most positive way is that having the different ideas and the diversity and the tough conversations help me grow. Yeah it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people and we have to kind of teach that skill. Do you have some, some tips on how you can grow that, grow that muscle really, and be more comfortable going into those conversations? Well, first I love, I love the reframe that you offered of just, yeah, this is uncomfortable, but I'm going to grow because I'm going to learn something different. Even, even just having a different perspective. The first thing I'll say is that a culture of conflict avoidance is as harmful, and I would argue sometimes more harmful than a culture of aggression. So while it may feel comfortable individually, we have to understand that that's actually doing real damage to our relationships. It's doing real damage to the sense of safety. It's doing damage to people being you know, willing and comfortable to speak up. 
And, you know, so a couple of things that I always invite people is one, if you find yourselves now, I'm a, you know, I'm a <laughs> in progress reformed avoider. Like I, I'm always pushing against just the very bred into me white Midwest woman, be nice, don't speak up, be a good girl, right? Like I, I have to like push against my DNA. But a couple of things that I would invite people, again, one, just get curious about what were the rules that you learned, whether it was growing up, whether it was in organizations, what what less, like what what were the beliefs and rules you've learned about conflict? And for a lot of people, it's that um, the opposite of like, the, one of the most common things I hear people say is, well, I don't want to be mean. So they associate conflict, they associate disagreeing, they associate a difficult moment with being mean. And, and see if you can push against some of those beliefs. Like, is that true? Is it really true? Do I know that to be true? Um, and the other thing is, you know, for people who are so afraid, one, it's like, what's the cost if you don't have this conversation? But also, um, conflict doesn't have to be a confrontation, you know? And, and I think sometimes we go into these moments thinking it's going to be a confrontation instead of really anchoring ourselves into the belief and the practice that it's a conversation. And, and, and maybe it's telling yourself, you know what, it's okay that Sherry and I disagree on this. And it's okay that I might even feel a little uncomfortable with this, but this is actually going to make the idea better. Um, you know, and, and for me, when I'm, when I'm working with somebody and coaching them to have a conversation that they've been avoiding, we really focus on a couple of key things. One, how do I help them anchor themselves to a bigger purpose that's bigger than this conversation to give them some courage? Like, what's the anchor here? Why does it matter for us to have this conversation? But also then to get really clear about who do you want to be? What do you want to do? What's the impact you're trying to make on this moment and in this conversation? But then there is just like emotional <laughs> regulation that you have to learn to be like, it's okay that it's a little uncomfortable. Like a little bit of heat is actually good. Um, that's not bad. Um, harmony is not, har harmony in the sense of conflict avoiders is not good. Harmony in the sense of having different voices coming in and creating this beautiful piece is great. Um, so the thing that, the biggest thing I would say is you are actually creating more damage in your organization because of your unwillingness to, to engage. Now, that then I have a big asterisk. And then there are times when it's okay not to. Maybe you really right. are unsafe. Maybe it's not the right place, right? Like, so I always want to put that asterisk on. And there are times where it's okay if we consciously step back. But let's do it consciously and from a place of power from within instead of feeling powerless. Yeah. You know, I want to share one more thing before we wrap up. And it's something that uh, a leader had shared in our org a few years back when they had stepped into the leadership role of HR. And they gave the analogy of a, a raft, like a whitewater raft, mm -hmm. right? And that, you know, all, all of the teams are in this raft, all 200 and something of us are in this raft. And when one person on the team starts to poke a hole in the boat, right? We mm. all, we all are going to sink. <laughs> like we're all in the same boat. And that analogy became so helpful in having tough conversations because you could go into it and say, I feel like I'm having a moment where I feel like you're poking mm. a hole in our boat. Mm. And that could be the reality. It could, here's what I'm seeing. And I want to talk through it. And it, it gave us some language to use to be able to go into that conversation. So, I mean, I know that you, that you teach around that and there's a lot of analogies that one could mm -hmm. use, but if you're in a leadership position, 
at that level, give your team some language to use to be able to address conflict that isn't aggressive and is very team focused. It's, I love, I love that. And I think it's always valuable when the team can come up with it themselves because it's just so much more meaningful. Um, Obviously, you know, in our work, it's all about the elephant of, I feel like we're feeding an elephant right now. Um, I don't know if anyone else notices it, but like I'm sensing we're avoiding something. Does anyone else feel that way? And that that you're right, the, what the language does is it disarms. It sends a message to everyone else that, oh, okay, like we need to talk about this and we need to address it. And when you can come up with that metaphor yourself, like, I, you know, I worked worked with a team and they actually had come up with this themselves and it was interesting. And I, I was, you know, it worked for them, but when somebody would say something that was sharp, they would go, ouch. And that was their cue to be like, hey, that like hurt. And I was like, if it works, I mean, <laughs> yeah. whatever, whatever works to say, ouch. And then the person's like, oh, I didn't wait, hold on. How did you take that? And, but I yeah. love that. I feel like we're poking the, I think, I feel like you're poking the boat. Yeah. Um, is really beautiful. Language, having shared language, shared metaphors. The thing with metaphors too, just real quickly, if I can learn, learn nerd out here a second, when we can apply a concept in a meta like in a metaphor way it's it's one of the deepest levels of learning because we're able to think about it through different ways and so that's what also makes it really powerful instead of just like well you need to give feedback you know and and that's why well you know like my my colleague Teresa she was the one who started the practice of uh, I want to prevent an elephant I love that and that was always the cue to me to go this is important and this feels like a risk to her so I need to make sure that I show up appropriately um, in this moment Love that. Well, Sarah, it's always great to have a conversation with you and just excited about the work that you continue to do in in leadership and, you know, just helping people grow. So I appreciate the time you had today with me. No, thanks for having me on the show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find show notes and links at thehrmixtape.com. Come back often and please subscribe, rate, and review.